welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. If you'd like to support our work here, then show some love by sending us a little bit of coin. Click on support the podcast on our website, www.whatsupw.docs.com. What's Up With Docs Call to Action is a new segment we've added to alert our listeners to filmmakers and those who work in the industry who are raising the alarm about unethical practice in the field and demanding change. This first one comes from friend of the podcast, Renee Tajman-Pena. This is from a post she co-wrote, Selling Out the Truth, What the Exiles Film Gets Wrong. We want to set the record straight about The Exiles, a new documentary that premiered at Sundance 2022 and is currently making the festival rounds. The film purports to tell the story of the making of Tiananmen, China, today, an unfinished 1989 film about Tiananmen Square dissident exiles. But The Exile contains material factual errors and distortions of the truth that must be addressed. After seeing the exiles during Sundance, we reached out to the representatives of the two directors, Ben Klein and Violet Columbus. The film is also executive produced by Chris Columbus, Eleanor Columbus, and Steve Soderbergh to address the inaccuracies in the film. To date, we have not received any response. We, the filmmakers who are directly involved with the making of the film Tiananmen, China Today, are making this public statement now as the film is going to be seen by many audiences. The potential viewing public needs to know that what they are watching is not the complete truth. You can find more information on this call to action on the link to this episode's page on our website. Welcome to the first full episode of season three. We're so happy to be back. We're going to begin this episode by defining what is an Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgement? An Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgement is a statement that recognizes the Indigenous peoples who have been dispossessed from the homelands and territories upon which an institution was built and currently occupies and operates in. For some, an Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgement might be an unfamiliar practice, but it is a common protocol within Indigenous communities in the United States and is a standard practice in both Australia and Canada. The terms land and territorial are not necessarily interchangeable, and the decision as to their use should be specific and local pertaining to those indigenous people who are being acknowledged, as well as to those legacies and responsibilities of an institution that are also being acknowledged. A preference for land acknowledgement is made in keeping with advocacy acknowledging the Lenape homeland. Within cultural institutions, these statements can be adopted in various ways. However, it is vital that they be spoken as a verbal statement given at the beginning of programs or events. They can also be expressed through a text panel or plaque and an acknowledgement on an institutional website. That was from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. You can find a link to this guide on our website. We're beginning the season with one of our special episodes we recorded in partnership with Doc Leipzig for their 2021 festival. This conversation was entitled, Preserving History During Times of Conflict. We recognize that war, conflict, and occupation often bring destruction, not only to physical bodies, but to the histories, archives, and cultural identities of the people impacted. During this conversation, I speak with artist, writer, filmmaker, and teacher, Miriam Ghani about her latest project, What We Left Unfinished, which is executive produced by Alyssa Namath. 
We discussed the necessity and importance of rediscovering history that was previously thought to be lost, as well as the unique ways that those subjected to occupation and conflict, whether that be through war or political structures, can hold on to their stories. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in September 2021. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because how I got started in documentary was through archival research. Mm. And I still do that on the side because I'm a nerd and I love to like look up things and I love history. I was doing this epic train trip across the country, East Coast to the West Coast. And I actually spent some time in Washington, D.C. and went to the Library of Congress. And for those who are in the U.S. who are who work as archival researchers, the Library of Congress has a lot of um, items, um, footage and documents that are of public domain. So it was like really great to actually be in that space that, you know, um, houses the, the people's history. And it also kind of speaks to the importance of like the need for some of these institutions, because um, if it weren't for some of these institutions, these items would not be preserved. And we're going to be getting into some of that and how it relates to what's happening in Afghanistan. I wanted to first ask you, particularly for our audience members who might not know about you, um, first of all, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? Well, it's an interesting story in a way because I started out as a documentary filmmaker and then I took a detour into the art world for 20 years and then I came back to documentary filmmaking. <laughs> That's basically uh, how it happened. What made you get out and then what made you get back in? I made an experimental documentary in my early 20s as actually my BA thesis. This was the 90s, it was comparative literature. Anything could be a text, including your own text, could, for comparative literature, could be films, and then you could analyze them yourself. I mean, it was a wild time, you know, the 90s and complet. I got interested in experimental documentary through the work of Walid Ra'ad and Jace Saloon, uh, Mona Hatoum, and then Mona Hatoum really took me on this other path where, <laughs> I saw her uh, solo show at the New Museum in New York, and it was the first time I'd seen anything in a museum that really spoke to me and my own experience. And it really blew my mind in a way. And I thought, art can be about this. Mm. Art can be about politics. Art can be about exile. And it can end up in museums. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> Then I started thinking, okay, well, well, maybe art school is the way, not film school. And okay. then I ended up in art school. That's the short version of the, the story. <laughs> so what kind of art were you creating? Like, what was your focus? Were you doing like um, video installations or what were, your, what were you working on? Yeah, I was always working with lens-based practices. I was working mm -hmm. with moving image primarily, but I was making multiple channel installations. Uh, videos with spatialized surround sound, interactive mm. video art in the early 2000s, but I, you know, stopped doing mm -hmm. that once my career became international because those things break really easily and when you're not personally there to fix them, it doesn't really remain right. a practical thing to keep making. Mm -hmm. And um, I made net art also in the 2000s. And then I, I started working a lot with archives. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. Both archives as material and also the construction of archives as artworks and photography and sound. Mm -hmm. That's great kind of like going back into the history of that. And it's weird to think of like the 90s as history. 
<laughs> I guess it is. I'm 50. So I'm like, ooh, 90s is history. Like that was just like five years ago, uh, right? You know? Yeah, I know. But it seems like a lot more documentary filmmakers are, are incorporating some of like these various experimental um, techniques now. Whereas like in the 90s, it was, it was kind of like, you know, radical. And, and <laughs> um, but we actually see some of these techniques that maybe we've seen in like art installations and museums being used mm-hmm. by filmmakers, like in, just in their film. Yeah, I, I do think I became more interested in the idea of making a feature length documentary when I started to see feature length documentaries looking more like artworks and adopting more of these kind of hybrid and experimental practices that had already been circulating in the art world for quite a long time. So, right. yeah, the other thing that happened, of course, was that I just, I started working on a project that clearly wanted to be a feature. And, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes content dictates its own form. And that's really what happened to me with what we left unfinished. It just so obviously wanted to be a feature film. (laughs) I worked on it in all these other ways. You know, I worked Mm -hmm. with the material as live cinema events. I, you know, did an exhibition or a series of exhibitions. I made, you know, all kinds of little mini objects and different, um, I did all these different panel discussions, but like it just wanted to be a feature Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. So that's what I ended up making. What we left unfinished has had many lives and many um, in- incarnations. Yes, it really okay. has. So, is, is this the final incarnation, or do you feel like there's more you could, more you could do with it, other things you could do with it? I mean, I did at one point think I could also make a book out of it. Or with <gasps> oh, that's a great idea! Like stills from the from mm-hmm. the films and with quotes mm-hmm. from the filmmakers and the mm-hmm. actors and yes. Okay, you should do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're getting into what we left unfinished, um, tell our audience, for those who don't know um, and need to know, what is What We Left Unfinished? What We Left Unfinished is a feature-length documentary about five unfinished films from the communist period in Afghanistan. And that's 1978 to 1991. And it basically brings together newly rediscovered and restored footage from these lost films with interviews with the people who worked on them and the kind of behind the scenes stories of the really extraordinary lengths that they went to, to keep making films in this period. And this was a period when filmmaking was really seen as a political tool Mm. and so it became a deeply politicized act to continue making films under the communist regime and films were seen as weapons filmmakers were seen you know as either participating in or resisting the regime and uh it they were subject to to political oppression to censorship to attacks from opponents of the regime uh, there are wild, wild stories in the film about what resulted from this. <laughs> um, and also it was a real DIY driven kind of yes. filmmaking that was going on in Afghanistan at this time. So there's also wild stories that result from that. Yes, I, those stories were were really great. I think for anyone who loves films that are, are about films and filmmaking, like this is this is a film that people should see um, from from that aspect because like stories are a little cray cray. Like you did mm-hmm. what? Like really? 
but it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. So you cover in the project five films. So can you mm-hmm. tell us about, just give us a brief synopsis of like r- Wrong Way. Wrong Way is an unfinished film by the director Juan Sher Hayabi, and it was made during the kind of tail end of the communist period, which is the period of reconciliation, the attempted reconciliation by the last communist president, Najibullah, with the Mujahideen. And it's really a film made in this spirit of reconciliation. It's a film about two brothers who are on opposing sides Mm -hmm. um, of this conflict. And one is with the Mujahideen, one is with the regime. And you know, through their conflict, you also see how this split has divided a village, a border village. It's really reflective of this moment in which kind of everyone wanted the war to be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, mm-hmm. we're so sick of this war, can't Retired. it be over already? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it sort of stages a reconciliation in advance of the reconciliation that everyone was hoping would happen. It stages mm-hmm. a small scale reconciliation in this village, which is very dramatically staged with like people like throwing their guns away. And, like, yes. Families <laughs> re- re-embracing Lots each of other hugging. after yes. conflict. And <laughs> it's really beautiful and weird. And the, the wrong way in the film is referring to how, you know, by that point in the war, everyone thought both sides had lost their way. Um, right. No, no one was right at that point. Yeah. yeah, and it was just time to make peace, mm-hmm. you know, time yeah. to make peace. All right. Um, and then Agent. Agent is a film from even later in this period when really there was like barely any regime functioning at that point. Um, it was actually produced independently. It's the only one of these five films that was produced independently mm. by its filmmaker rather than being funded by the regime because there was no more state funding for film at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviet aid had all been withdrawn. Uh, and the Soviet aid was really what was fueling um, state funding for film. This is a film that was produced independently by Latif Ahmadi, its director. And it really looks at, in a kind of prescient way, heroin trade had begun to permeate so many different aspects of Afghanistan mm. during the war. How so many different aspects of Afghan society had become involved in this heroin trade during the war. And it's like both sides of both sides of the war were involved in it. We're using mm-hmm. it to fund various things or were part of the trafficking. It looks so, like how, you know, even nomads were like carrying, <laughs> carrying mm-hmm. the, carrying the opium from one part of the country to the other, the truckers, like it looks at like actually all of these different circuits that, that mm-hmm. the heroin is traveling throughout the, throughout the country. Quick question, just for historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, what was driving the heroin trade? Obviously their d- demand, but uh, also like who, who was getting the money and what was the money fueling? I think primarily it was fueling the insurgency. So fueling the Mujahideen mm-hmm. uh, fight. It's very common, you know, in these kinds of civil wars for uh, insurgent groups to fund their activities through a combination of drug trafficking, antiquities trafficking, which also very much mm. happened in Afghanistan, jewel trafficking, if, if there are any kind of mineral or jewel deposits, that also gets trafficked. Like there's mm-hmm. just a lot of trafficking during these wars. And that was very much the case in Afghanistan as well. The heroin trade, which had not really been happening on that scale, I think prior to 78, 
became a much, much bigger facet. An increase. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Soviet army also got involved in this actually to a surprising extent because the Soviet Union was one of the major uh, Mm -hmm. markets for Afghan heroin. Uh, So there's a scene in Agent, which didn't make it into what we left unfinished, but there's a scene Mm -hmm. in Agent where you see heroin being packed into coffins that are being flown Mm. back to the Soviet Union by the Soviet Union. Right. And that wow. is one of the ways actually that they were reportedly, that mm-hmm. heroin was reportedly trafficked back to the Soviet Union. They would actually burn bodies and then pack the coffins full of heroin. Downfall. Yeah, Downfall is a film by the late Fakir Nabi. One of his only films as a director, he's mostly known as an actor uh, and a great, great Afghan actor. Mm-hmm. And he, um, it would have been his first film as a director and, and it was, was an interesting one like to kind of sort through the footage and figure out what it what had been intended to kind of be the order of scenes or how they would have been assembled partly because they didn't finish principal photography on that film Mm -hmm, and also mm -hmm. partly they did a lot of reshoots and it just wasn't as clear I think from the way that it was shot how the director had originally envisioned it being assembled as it was with some other films made by more experienced directors. But these films, you had the footage, but did you happen to have access to the, the some of the scripts? No, we didn't no, have okay. access to any of the scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, the directors, in most cases, hadn't retained any of that material when they fled in the late 80s or 90s. Right. Mm-hmm. They had to leave all of that behind. And a lot of them didn't remember the original. It's a long, it's a long time films. ago. Yeah. It's a long time ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> But, Mm -hmm. you know, with a film like Wrong Way, it had very, very clear scene markers um, Mm -hmm. on all the slates. Uh, Right. So it was actually pretty clear how it had been meant to be constructed. And that wasn't necessarily the case with every film. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So in any case, Downfall Downfall is a film that was made in uh, the mid-communist period, which was a period of really intense paranoia about surveillance. For context, by that point in the 80s, the state security agency, HUD, uh, which had been trained by the KGB and the Stasi, Mm -hmm. they had been mentored by the KGB and the Stasi, employed about 20,000 people, some of whom were agents, but some of whom were secret informants. And, Mm -hmm. And I think the secret informants vastly outnumbered the actual agents. So there was this real and in many cases warranted paranoia mm-hmm. about who might be watching you and reporting on you to Chad. And Sukut for me is a downfall. Sukut is a film mm-hmm. for, that for me is really born from this moment of, mm. of surveillance anxiety. It's a film about a Chad agent is the protagonist. Like the protagonist mm-hmm. is an agent who works for Chad who gets kind of caught up from what I could understand of the plot, which is a little murky. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who gets caught up in a kind of criminal conspiracy that he's drawn into by some kind of old friend, which he's supposed to be investigating for Had, but then he somehow gets implicated in through some scheme that they set up and ensnare him in via like the daughter of the family who he falls in love with. I don't know. That's what you think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think it was. It was very confusing. The thing that was really notable about it to me is that it's this kind of cops and robbers movie, essentially. Mm, but it mm-hmm. it's just full of footage of people 
watching each other, filming each other, photographing mm. each other and following each other. And wow. that was like 20% of the footage that we had mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was just surveillance. Cause that, that yeah. was a real concern for, for folks um, back in the day. So just for yeah. our, some of our younger people, um, mm-hmm. the KGB or as the major spy in it, um, the spy entity that was part of the former Soviet Union. Yeah. And Stasi was um, the major spy unit that was part of East Germany. Yes, and actually in Berlin, there's a museum called the Spy Museum, mm-hmm. which is like really, really cool. And they go into all this stuff and they have like little artifacts of like all the little spy devices, mm-hmm. not only from just like, the, it's mainly like Soviet Union in the US, so you know, Soviet Union of the KGB mm-hmm. versus the CIA, but they go into stuff with other countries too. It's, it's really cool and a little scary. We, we feel like they know like what we're doing now because we have all these smartphones and that smartphones. But there was a lot going back in at the, basically at the height of the Cold War. So Black Diamond is another film about the um, heroin trade. Um, so mm-hmm. how does this differ from Agent? This was another one where the plot was really unclear. But, okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And the director really didn't remember anything about the plot. Uh, it's, it's made not that long before Agent. So again, towards the end of this period, but it is state funded. And so it takes a kind of less neutral position, I would say, where Agent is a little more observatory in the way that it kind of uses the heroin trade as part of its plot. The Black Diamond is really condemns everyone who who participates (laughs) in trafficking. And it has like several kinds of trafficking um, mm-hmm. in the plot and everyone involved in the drug trafficking who's also they're also like doing things like making and selling fake passports so that people can leave the country and mm. so on is clearly a terrible person they do things also in the film like stage gas attacks on buses mm. and in schools uh, which are similar to things that actually did happen in Kabul mm-hmm. in that era especially the school gas attack that's staged in that film is based mm-hmm. on a real incident and, and follows it like quite closely, I think, in the particulars. Last but not least, the April Revolution. Yeah, the April Revolution uh, is an extraordinary document um, <laughs> in that it is a reenactment of the 1978 Afghan communist coup d'etat staged three months after the actual coup d'etat and featuring the entire mm-hmm. army and air force. Um, mm-hmm. using, you know, real tanks, real missiles, real guns, and also featuring Hafizullah Amin, uh, the deputy leader of the Communist Party, you know, with his family reenacting the moment, you know, when he gave the order mm. to start the coup d'etat from house arrest in his apartment. So they, they restaged that in his actual apartment with his, mm. with his family. This is because the whole thing was scripted by Hafizullah Amin. <laughs> it was it was his project from the outset there's supposedly 36 more minutes of footage with Hafizullah Amin that has been totally lost and I wasn't able to find any of that footage I was only able to find you know the three and a half minutes that was used in uh, a Soviet documentary co-produced by Uzbek film 
mm-hmm. um, directed by the Uzbek filmmaker Malik Kayumov, um, which features the Hafizullah Amin footage, but with that kind of Russian voiceover that's very snarky yeah. that, yes. that I did use in my film because I thought it was so remarkable. It kind of shows the the intense like shift in the political view of Hafizullah Amin that is put forward by the Soviets after they assassinate him, which they did like quite shortly after that, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just before the documentary is released and, you know, not very long after the film was shot. That's the reason it's never finished, of course, is because it it was a project of Amin's and he was Mm -hmm. um, he was deposed, assassinated and very quickly villainized in Mm -hmm. like 20 different ways. So how did the archive in Russia get that footage of the film if it wasn't finished? The story that I have heard, and this is of course hearsay, is that Malik Kayumov came to Afghanistan to make his documentary about the Afghan revolution, Afghanistan, the revolution continues. Mm -hmm. And he basically took all of the, the footage featuring Hafizullah Amin from this unfinished documentary. He just took it from Afghan film. Uh, and took it back to Uzbekistan with the intent of using it in his documentary. The only part of it that I was able to find is the part that's in the Finnish documentary because the Finnish documentary is in the Krasnogorsk archive in Moscow, but Mm -hmm. the footage he didn't end up using would have been stored at Uzbek film and Uzbek film dissolved in the 90s Mm. when the Soviet Union dissolved. Uzbek right. film was completely disbanded. I'm sure it is somewhere in Tashkent, like in someone's house. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. in someone's house, in a basement, mm-hmm. in a box, somewhere, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The stuff resurfaces from Uzbek film occasionally. So, I mean, I know people kept things, so I'm sure it's there mm-hmm. somewhere, but I wasn't able to find it, you know, in time for making what we left unfinished, but I continue to put out into the world my yes. desire <laughs> to see it someday. Um, uh-huh. I would love to see the rest of this footage someday. Uh, what I did was buy the footage from Krasnogorsk, the three and a half okay. minutes. I, I took to them an official letter from Afghan Film requesting the return of, of this footage. Yes, okay. And they mm-hmm. said no. So then I bought it <laughs> <laughs> and returned it. But I was it was so expensive, I was only able to buy it in HD, you know, because they were charging so much money for it. So how much did they... Since we're, we're getting in deep into archival stuff, like how much was it? Like how much was it per minute or per second? Like what what are their rates? I believe the three and a half minutes was thirty five hundred dollars. Oh my HD. goodness! So four K was like four K was I think three or four times as much. And I just I was in a pretty early stage in the film then, and mm-hmm. I definitely did not have that much money for licensing. I, I thought ABC News Source was expensive, but I guess even over there, it's pricey. Yeah, <laughs> but Russian archives are not cheap. So I just wanted to ask, like, how did you find out about these films, mm-hmm. particularly considering they were they're unfinished? Yeah, so I first started hearing about these particular films. And in particular, the first one I heard about was the April Revolution during a proof of concept digitization workshop that I helped run at Afghan Film in 2011, I want to say, 2011, 2012, during a series of workshops that were put together for Documenta 13, the big periodic exhibition in Germany, which had in the 13th edition, a kind of auxiliary project in Kabul. I was part of and so was that project helping like just basically 
creating opportunities for people to digitize these archives for the preservation purposes? Yeah, essentially what what Afghan film wanted was for us to help them put together a proof of concept mm -hmm. uh, that would allow them to then raise money to uh, digitize the entire archive, which is what wow. they wanted to do. And we, mm -hmm. you know, we only had 10,000 euros for this workshop. So we said, we can, we can give you a proof. Of, we can, we can help you do a proof of concept version where we, you know, digitize like 30 films um, mm -hmm. and from different periods and genres. And we do them with the existing machine that they had, which was a spirit telecine from the nineties, which um, digitizes mm. to like HGV tape. You know, your highest resolution is 480p, which obviously not ideal these days. No, yeah. Not, not conservative not archival right. now. Yes. And also mm -hmm. it was broken. The telecine was broken. Mm -hmm. We, um, I was working with colleagues from Padma, the Public Access Digital Meeting Archive, Media Archive Collective um, out of Mumbai. They recruited mm. a telecine technician from Bollywood, uh, okay. Shavan, okay. who mm -hmm. came mm -hmm. up to Kabul along with Shainanan, Ashok Kumaran, Saiza Khan um, from Padma. They all came up to Kabul and we spent three weeks in the archive. Wow. Vijay fixed everything that he saw that was broken, literally wow. everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, processors, steam backs, telecine, and then he trained everyone who, who wanted mm. to learn to use mm -hmm. the telecine, and they became like really, really adept at it. Uh, right, people, right. Which then came in really good stead once they were able to raise funds mm -hmm. to, to buy a newer telecine. Um, mm -hmm. They'd already gotten very familiar with the whole process. Right. Um, and a lot of the theory around color and light and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and dealing with fragile film and fragile splice points. And yes, yes. Yeah, all of these I mean, material questions. That's something probably a person who's not familiar with like working in archives that really doesn't understand is it's not just the the issue of like collecting the archives but it's also the preservation but also like handling archives that are delicate like in this original mm -hmm. state like I, I remember the the first film I, I worked on um bridging divide tom bradley politics of race i went to the los angeles city archives mm -hmm. and they had all this footage on reels you know 16 mm -hmm. millimeter reels that had not been looked at in like 40 years yeah. And had not even been open. So mm -hmm. we actually had to find like someone who knew how to, who had to bring a machine to look at those reels, but also mm -hmm. who knew how to splice, splice it. Because yeah. when we were, we, when we were watching it, it would break because it was so yeah. delicate. So like, yeah. you know, handling and putting it back together, we were able to use um, some of that, some of that footage and, and digitize what we needed for the film. But the rest of that, and there were like hundreds of reels there, was not even looked because it wasn't relevant to what we needed. But it's just still sitting there in its original state, decaying. Mm -hmm. And there was some fascinating stuff. Like there, were, there was all this footage of the Watts riots that had been shot by the LAPD because this wow. is like the LAPD archives. And it's not the regular, it's not the normal stuff that you see in films about, mm -hmm. you know, about the, the Watts rebellion. But also there were like funny things like Khrushchev at Disneyland. You know, you know so, <laughs> which was, was like, which was like, it was of interest to me because my grandfather, who I love dearly, he used to make me memorize the names of the Soviet premieres. 
mm-hmm. and and then recite them back to him and write them down. But it was I remember at the time when you know they were they were picking all these really old ones and they were dying all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were like you know. So I was like I had like all these Russian names in my brain. There's stuff there we just don't know what it is that's just sitting there decaying because these archives a lot of them don't have the resources to and or the time or the money or the capacity to help preserve them. The one thing I loved about this project or this film was that it showed completely different view of Afghanistan that we particularly here in the U.S. or the West are not used to. And I, even though there were the films were dealing with some of these heavy subjects, they also were scenes of just like Afghans living their like everyday lives. Would you describe this time as like a golden age of Afghan cinema? Well, the directors describe it that way, certainly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. think one of them says that in the film. And I think from their perspective, it was in that they were given more funding. There was state support for cinema in a way that you know, hadn't existed before and hasn't really existed since. And there was also, you know, for all of the arts, there was a a kind of elevation of artists to a social position that mm-hmm. they hadn't had before and haven't had since. You right. Know, this, this was true also for the performers. It was true for people in other artistic disciplines. There were artist unions formed, mm-hmm. as in kind of all the all the Soviet-backed um, countries and Soviet republics this was a pattern they did this everywhere they formed these artist unions and then the heads of the unions were given diplomatic passports mm-hmm. you know there was there was uh, they were given prominent artists or actors or directors were given apartments they were given mm-hmm. better ration cards you know there was like right. a, <laughs> there was a reward system for there were rewards for participating in the system, but there were also a lot of dangers to being prominent participants right. in the system, especially for actors who, you know, were the faces mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this cultural push, right? Right. Um, and and they remember it differently than the directors mm-hmm. do, of course. Mm. <laughs> right? They remember it as a much more fraught and dangerous time right. than the directors do because the directors were behind the camera. They were safer. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I remember one of the, I can't remember her name, but one of the, um, the women um, actors, she talked about um, how actresses were, were in some circles like viewed as like prostituted women which um, kind of made me think of like old Hollywood, like back in the day before the talkies, like that was mm-hmm. like the perception that lived <laughs> that was um, that was prominent back mm-hmm. then. Um, and like, you know, it's like, why, like, why? But speaking from like her perspective, like um, that people were people confronting her on the street about, you know, her being in films, like what aspect of it was dangerous for her? It was more that, the shoots that they did in, especially in more rural areas when they ventured outside of the city mm-hmm. itself would actually be attacked by the Mujahideen. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. the, the actors and the, and the directors remember this differently in that mm-hmm. the directors will describe it as we were shooting and somehow we ended up in the middle of a firefight totally accidentally 
and the actors you know will remember <laughs> like, it as they came after us totally <laughs> deliberately and right. they were going to kidnap us and they said you know shoot the men and take the girls like that kind of story right so okay. it's two very different versions of of these stories that you'll get from from actors and directors the directors mm -hmm. will be like you could totally negotiate with the mujahideen it was fine and the actors will be and like i like, couldn't no. even say i was an actor it was better to say i was a soldier another thing that i really like appreciated this about this film is that it's such it's a celebration of these artists as well as their fortitude and their commitment to their mm -hmm. art like these folks <laughs> are dedicated yeah. hardcore like any artist you know mm -hmm. um yeah. also it's a celebration of their work it seems like there is i noticed like when i've traveled to overseas the festivals particularly to europe there mm -hmm. seems to be almost a resurgence and filmmakers like today exploring some of these films of the past, particularly of the mm -hmm. communist of the communist era and mm -hmm. these um, a lot of these Soviet bloc countries. Because mm -hmm. I think when the the Soviet when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union like ended in theory, there was maybe a, a rush to forget all these artistic works, they do speak to a specific cultural memory and just like any film, like capturing a, a moment in time. This is what film does anyway. It captures moments um, so we can reflect and remember, but also you mentioned before about some of the artists who inspired you, who are not only talking, who not only created art, but like exploring their experience as exiles and mm -hmm. since this the, a lot of these filmmakers and these actors and actresses who are in exile like what do you see as the the neat aspects of cultural memory that they're trying to explore with their work it's a little bit of a tricky question because i think at the time that they were being made i don't know that all of these directors were making films for history, right? Yeah, I mean, they're respecting yeah. their films to get out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of them, of all of these filmmakers, probably Haidavi and Latif Ahmadi were really thinking about posterity, thinking about mm -hmm. you know, films that, that enter into the historical record and maybe not so much the others. We were right. more thinking about films as entertainment. I don't know what Dawood Farani, who directed The April Revolution, was thinking because, of course, he was dead by the time that I made What We Left Unfinished and I couldn't interview him. I only was able to interview Latif Ahmadi, who was the cinematographer mm -hmm, on that film, mm -hmm. as well as the director of Agent. Certainly, that was a film that was trying to address the his Yeah, exactly, yes. Mm -hmm, as well, mm -hmm. and create a kind of document of, of mm -hmm. that moment where no actual document existed right right surprise mm -hmm. coup there's no document right <laughs> exactly exactly yeah right. and the mm -hmm. reason i you know the reason the april revolution is the first of these unfinished films that i became aware of is because it's been recycled so much the footage from mm. that film has been recycled into other films you know often enough that it it almost has come to function like a historical document of the coup like so right? everybody references it as 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 a point yeah it is mm -hmm. the only image of that moment that exists mm -hmm. so right. even though it's fictional it does embody that history on screen right right mm -hmm. in so many other 
films, documentaries and fiction films that, that mm-hmm. kind of refer to that historical moment, which I find fascinating. I think um, the unique thing yeah. about that film is just because it happened like so soon after three months, because yeah. sometimes, you know, these films about, you know, historical moments are created you know, a year or 10 years or 15 years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And this is like in the immediate. Yeah. I think I mean, Amin was very interested in mm-hmm. the historical record and how he would be remembered in it, right? And mm-hmm. that was the project of that film for him. The and he and he wanted thing, to control that narrative in a way. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting and tricky thing about making a film about a coup d'etat so soon after a coup d'etat is that the government <laughs> wasn't actually stable yet. And right. so there's a story I didn't put in the film that really speaks to this, which is that when they lowered the flag of the communists on the presidential palace and put back up the flag of the monarchy temporarily to Mm -hmm. shoot you know the sequence uh, for the film of the taking over of the palace people thought the government had actually fallen too soon it was too soon (laughs) right it was too soon people just people didn't think a film was being made they just thought the government had fallen right right and there were real consequences to that because some members of the Hulk faction of the Communist Party, Amin's faction, um, who were known for their luxuriant mustaches, actually shaved their mustaches. <laughs> yeah, when mm. they saw the flag go down. And then Amin heard about this and he threw them all in prison and they were never heard from again. There are a lot of ways in which, you know, the relationship between truth and fiction in these films is pretty slippery. Mm-hmm. Right. We talked about the gas attack incident that's kind of mm-hmm. reproduced in the Black mm-hmm. Diamond. There are a lot of episodes in Downfall that, according to uh, the director, were scripted by an actual HUD agent. You know, there are other things like that in other films. And, you know, the stories that Haider tells about the shoot he was on where right. you know, he was the only actor and everyone else, you know, playing soldiers were actual Ra- soldiers. soldiers. Yeah. That kind of thing was happening all the time in these films. There there was a very lively interplay between fiction and documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like there's no, there is very little division between art and life, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So one of my my favorite quotes from the film, um, it's the director with the hat, who like, (laughs) I guess everyone, yes, everyone, as you say, everybody loves. (laughs) Um, but he talks about film being um, a visual history and it's like a person who sits in the corner and recounts all the tragedies and histories either real or imagined Mm -hmm. and like that quote to me was like so profound because it really actually it kind of feels to me like a a documentarian sensibility Mm -hmm. you know um like a verite documentary sensibility um Uh but also when he talks about tragedies and histories like real or imagined he's already he's like really getting into how memory and how how we how we remember like Mm -hmm. already impacts like what we are going to see or perceive on screen and Mm -hmm. i just thought that was just so profound like that that very level of consciousness of like me as the observer, I mm-hmm. shifting what is being observed. So 
Um, I just want to, I know I'm probably getting a little esoteric there. <laughs> and, no, and, and, and my background is in anthropology. So I think about, I think about these things. So but I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, particularly from the perspective of, you know, this being an archival based film. There's another thing he says later in the film where he says, whatever the truth was, whether it was sweet or bitter, that's what I put in my films. And then he, he gives a little pause and he says, and then of course you add some dramatic flair. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. There's a lot happening in that space between whatever yes. the truth was, I put it in my films and then, right. and then you add some dramatic flair. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like spice it up no but it's, it's story is storytelling you know yeah it's yeah. absolutely storytelling and mm -hmm. I mean the reason I was interested in these unfinished films which are fictions as material for a documentary is of course because of that slippery relationship between document and fiction and Afghan film and also because there's very little filmic material made during this period that escaped censorship in any mm. way because mm -hmm. censorship was so strong and it happened at so many stages of the filmmaking. These films also were censored at several stages in their making, mm -hmm. but they escaped the kind of final censors cut, which happens when a film is edited and then has to pass through the censor before getting distributed when they would literally go at it with scissors. And wow. discard whatever they took out. Right. So were these um censors like folks from the, the Soviet Union or folks from Afghanistan who were like um agents of the Soviet <laughs> Union? So like who who were these people who were um with who were the people with the scissors? I mean, from what I understand, and I think this is discussed briefly in the film, for most of this period there was one guy who was the censor. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um who was Afghan <laughs> and he, mm -hmm. he was that final censor with the scissors uh the Soviets came in at the point when dailies would be watched they were yeah. on the set but also all the scripts had to go through a censorship board in order to get government funding right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah right and directors were also on these censorship boards right so mm -hmm. several of the directors I interviewed actually were on the censorship board at one time or another mm -hmm. like the, the board that reviewed scripts which wasn't officially called a censorship board but was totally a censorship board so, so they all told me we also sent scripts back because they just weren't good enough which I mean right. may or may not be true <laughs> right it's true <laughs> Like, I want to get mine made. You just need yes. another draft. You need another draft. Like. Yes. <laughs> and another one and another one. I just kind of want to understand, like, your experience as a Afghan woman looking at this footage. Like, what, what, was, what did that mean for you? It is important to be precise about my position when I'm working with material from Afghanistan and working in Afghanistan and you know, that position has always been a diasporic position in yeah. that I grew mm -hmm. up outside Afghanistan and that always inflects how I look at Afghan film and look at any material from Afghanistan and work with any material from Afghanistan so that there's always a certain degree of estrangement, you know, in mm. my viewpoint that's just baked in that is inevitable and inescapable. Mm -hmm. You know, I just have to kind of go with it. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you use the yeah. word estrange estrangement because usually when we use that, the person using that term has kind of like in some ways made a choice to like kind of disassociate in some kind of way. 
you know, or, or disconnect. Mm-hmm. But in your case, it hasn't been a choice. Yeah, I mean, I think probably I might not have used the term estrangement three months ago, right? But it's hard no, to but, right now. No, but estrangement from like based on everything that's happened with the, the U.S. pulling out and the Taliban taking back things over. Are, things are a little weird right now, yeah. Um, oh, a lot, a lot of weird, yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, you know, the diasporic position, which is the one I've worked from all my life as an artist and as a filmmaker, is a very tricky position in that you mm-hmm. never fully belong in mm-hmm. either space. You're not fully from the place you're from and you're not fully from the place you're you know, visiting, right? Even if it's technically your home. Right. That is something that inflects how I work with all the material that I've worked with from Afghanistan. In the case of what we left right. unfinished, by the time I made the film, I had already been working with, um, the archive for six years. So tell us about Afghan archive and what you're trying to do with that. It's a really hard (laughs) question to answer right now because the fate of the archive is very uncertain at the moment. Following the proof of concept digitization that we did in 2011 at the invitation of the Afghan Film Archive, that was successful in helping them raise funding to recatalog the entire archive and begin digitizing the archive, mm-hmm. they did get quite a long way into that. They, they managed to do, do a fair bit of, mm-hmm. of that digitization. Also, the other thing that it did was draw attention to what was in the archive. Some People parts of it had never know really what was been in there. Some of what was in there, like some of the more well-known among Afghans feature films, which do kind of play on national television mm-hmm. regularly, you know, had been bootlegged and circulating on YouTube or whatever for, for some time. But other things that were in the archive, like the newsreel footage or the unedited mm. footage, nobody knew that those were there. So when we put those online through Padma, that started to draw more attention from foreign filmmakers mm-hmm. who wanted to license footage or foreign news organizations who wanted to license footage. And also the attention of a few documentary filmmakers who became interested in the story of the archive. So Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. one of the things actually that led to, for example, Pietro Breck, Kelly's film, The Flickering Truth, and then Ariel Nasser's film, The Forbidden Real. It it really, it did generate this additional interest in an excitement about the archive and its story, uh, which Mm -hmm. is a remarkable story of these people who who sacrificed a lot to, to preserve these films through a lot of a lot of conflict and a lot of hardship. Yeah. I mean, the guy who says, yeah. if they ask me for the key, mm-hmm. I'll just say I lost it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and and that's in reference to, um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically he was trying to protect these archives and he was still in the country and he had mm-hmm. access to them, but, you know, he was going to like deny, deny, deny in mm-hmm. um, the efforts um, and the goals of preservation. Yeah, that was during the previous Taliban regime, and mm-hmm. um, it's it was one of the factors that led to the preservation of most of the archive from the Taliban during that mm-hmm. time. Right. Um, which is, a at this point, a very well-known story, and there are many, many of the people who were involved in defying the Taliban at that time are still alive, and so they're now at increased risk because of that. It's a powerful stand to take because this is like the, the preservation of, of history. 
And it's also, you know, for many of these people, it was the preservation of their own life's work. Yes. Because these are people yes. who, mm-hmm. who worked at Afghan film for decades mm-hmm. and had their hands, you know, on all of these films. They were lab technicians, they were negative cutters, they processed these films, they sliced mm-hmm. these films. They were the people who actually physically made the films. It is also, and this is also something I always think about with the materiality of archives. The archives are communities of people. Mm, The Afghan Film Archive was very much a community of people who had been involved not only in preserving the archive as an archive, but also in many cases in making the films that that constituted that archive. And not just in making them as cinema, but but Mm -hmm. actually in physically, materially making them as films. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, and it, it actually kind of references my conversation I had with um, Jihan El Tari and about the the manifesto and liberate the image. And mm-hmm. you were you mentioned how you wrote to the Soviet archive initially to ask yeah. for the return, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically the return of these of these like of this footage to uh, to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that um, Jihan and her her colleagues call for and liberate the image because like mm-hmm. like you mentioned archives are so expensive and particularly um there is particular archives from other countries that are are in that are in from countries that are in other countries there's this air of um colonization about that mm-hmm. and yeah. um there has been a call for the return of these images and um, I, I just want to kind of, if you could like speak more on that, I know you mentioned that one experience, but um, in your work with the, Af- with the Afghan film, have you like reached out to entities in other countries besides the Soviet Union who might be footage to ask for like the return of, of items to be part of the Afghan archives so the people can have access to it? Yeah, so in, in that particular case, it was actually the, the head of the archive who, who wrote the official letter requesting okay. the return of the footage. It wasn't me because I'm not an official official government right. in any way, okay, right? Got so it, right. It wouldn't mm-hmm. have made sense if it came from me. I'm not aware of any other specific cases like that, or the, although there may have been some. Mm-hmm. That's the only story that I know about. Historically, uh, Afghan film and later the National Archive, which took over the Afghan film archive has been very unwilling, generally very unwilling to let the films leave the country. Mm-hmm. They did at one point allow the National Film Board of Canada to scan about 20, 20 films, but those were all returned. They were scanned as part of kind of deal around the production of the Forbidden Reel, which was an NFB film. There was supposed to be a kind of larger collaboration happening around that, which I think fell apart because of lack of funding. So unfortunately, those were never really like fully restored or anything like that. Um, Trying to see if we can do anything with them now. It's complicated because like a country wants to hold on to its heritage, its history. It gets tricky when you're talking about a country that um, is at war, you know, and governments are unstable and you don't know if a government's coming in that really wants to who really wants to erase that history I guess my question is like how can like maybe those of us who who are um who are not 
from a particular country, how can we support, mm -hmm. how can we support like organizations like Af Afghan film mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, preservation? I mean, ideally it'd be cool if, you know, there could be some like kind of cooperation or exchange, not exchange, but where mm -hmm. the, may the main archives originals are in one place, but then like the other ones, uh, copies of it are stored, like, you know, with what you mentioned with the national, mm -hmm. what the national film board did, mm -hmm. but um, what can we do <laughs> to mm -hmm. help, to help preserve the, these heritage, heritages? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the general idea that, that you're kind of referring to, which is, which is, that is actually the, the way that archivists normally approach it now is to mm -hmm. sort of uh, leave material archives in place and, right. mm -hmm. um, you know, reproduce digital copies in other, in other countries for safekeeping, for security, for restoration, whatever, mm -hmm. but to always leave the material copies in, in the original country, in the original community. Um, right. that is generally standard practice in archiving now. Mm -hmm. And that is what, was the plan also with the <laughs> Afghan film archives it just yeah. didn't really get carried out mm -hmm. um so now we're we're kind of at this moment left only with really specific films that were you know in progress in some way in right, other right. places mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. my my team had been working on restorations pro bono for specific films by the directors who are interviewed and what we left unfinished as mm -hmm. you know, kind of part of our our ongoing process of what we left unfinished I would yes. say it's right mm -hmm. kind of our ongoing relationships and and kind of thinking around the film was that we should also do something for each director who was in yes. the film mm -hmm. we should restore one of their f finished films basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and put it into circulation and so we 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 have copies of those films because we were working on those restorations. Yeah, um, that'll be awesome. Yeah. Like, I, I would definitely like. I want to see some of these in, in their full entirety. You know, mm -hmm. as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I and mean, they're worth. They're definitely worth seeing. They're. They're, mm -hmm. they're yeah, and the NFB has. Uh, I presume they kept. They kept. I hope they kept the the full scans of the films yes. that they scanned. <laughs> right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and. I think there may be a few other things in a few other places, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't know what has been or will be the fate of the files, the digital files and the material objects that, you know, were held in the National Archive at the time of the government's collapse. I don't, I just don't right. know, you know, the, the community of people that is also the archives you know, they need support. <laughs> mm -hmm. What are some specific things that, you know, we can do? Well, there are people who are at risk and still in Afghanistan who need sponsors for visas and help, you know, paying for visas and will need help with resettlement later with mentorship, mentorship and um, educational placement or fellowship placements, things like that. There are filmmakers also that we're still trying to help leave and, mm -hmm. you know, get to a new place and, you know, find support for in that new place. It's basically all the things that all Afghans at risk need right now, which is right. mm -hmm. help with travel, help with visas, 
help with resettlement and like thinking in the long term, like what do they do? How do they connect to community? Mm -hmm. How do they continue to develop professionally once they're in a new place, right? Um, mm -hmm. All of those questions, yeah. Um, okay. Because one of my things I've really been trying to think about, you know, now that the the sort of madness of the emergency evacuation is over and we're settling into this longer, slower, harder work, mm -hmm. um, right? Of of the long term process, is really thinking about not just day two or day three, but month six, month 12, year two, year three, year five, you know. What, what will that look like? People? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how do you really plan for that? And how do you really help people get to that? Mm -hmm. One thing we didn't talk about that I think is really important to the film is the sound design in the film, which connects to the way that we worked with this fictional material within you know, this documentary framework. And that's really thinking about how to present these films as films and the decision to construct full scenes um, mm -hmm. from these movies, you know, because of course, most of them, we only had raw footage. Uh, right. And the feeling that we had after a rough cut that looked completely different and didn't <laughs> totally work, um, as they so often don't work, documentary rough cuts, but the feeling that we had that in order to understand why these filmmakers went to such lengths to keep making films, you had to actually see their films right? mm -hmm. um, and see the kind of the joy, right, that result. Yes. That resulted from these insane efforts um, to keep making films. And then, you know, where the sound comes into that is all of this Foley that we did uh, mm. to, to kind of fill out the, the life worlds of these clips because mostly we didn't have any sound. Oh, really? To, so yeah. did, you, did you just have like audio from the, you had the audio from the actors, but they, no, it, we had nothing. These, we had nothing. You had no, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There was mm -hmm. nothing. There was, we only had audio for some of the clips from um, Agent. That's why you hear a little dialogue from mm. Agent. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't have any audio for any other films. So, wow. okay. Yeah. So we made all of it. Um, we made all of that fully and we made it kind of in the style of films from that region in that period. Right. So yeah, because like it, it, it seemed, no, it, I know, but it seemed to fit. Like yeah. I didn't, yeah. So I mean, that's what it was meant to do. Okay. It's meant to <laughs> kind of feel seamless. It's meant to feel, yeah. fit seamlessly with the clips from Agent that did have sound. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to kind of um, really just feel of that era. It's meant to feel like these clips are from, are clips from movies that exist, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But that's all an illusion because they didn't exist and they never existed. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the other thing is that the the ambient sound in those clips actually comes from our present day footage um so these mm -hmm. kind of matching shots that we did um yeah. where we we have footage from the same locations that were used in the archival films and there's this mm -hmm. kind of like really subtle continuity between the audio in the present day shots and the audio in the mm -hmm. archival footage because it is actually the same same, the same sound. space yeah yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, so I always nice. like to just point that out because it's yes. the thing I'm proudest of in the film yeah. is the sound design. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. <laughs> also, seventy percent of the footsteps are mine. So 
Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. DIY it's, fully. It's like yeah, exactly. me and five different pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like this is me walking. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> awesome. And then um, organizations that are out there, maybe um, uh, who are like have like websites that we should go to so we can, you know, help help preserve these, you know, help preserve these archives, but also help mm -hmm. um, these Afghan artists who are doing this work of preservation. Indeed. So um, you can go to artsforafghanistan.org, uh, which is the sort of ad hoc coalition that I was humbly part of organizing. There's a whole list of resources um, at that website that links to many other great organizations that are doing this work. And um, we'll, we'll have a very specific fundraiser up on there very soon as well. We'd like to thank the folks at Doc Leipzig who worked so hard to make this partnership happen. Shout outs to Nadia Tinstead and Anne Rethschfeldt, who is now with the Documentary Association of Europe. Our next episode will feature the second episode from our 2021 partnership entitled Jihan and Tony Talk Archives. During this conversation, I speak with filmmaker and archivist Jihan El Tari about the manifesto Liberate the Image, which was a call to action to make archives more accessible to content creators living in the global south. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert and the team at Doc Leipzig. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Shumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.